0: Thank you for tuning in to another edition of Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. And now here's your host, John Lauck.
1: Welcome to another edition of Heartland History. I'm your host, John Lauck. Today we are joined by Dennis Gardner, who is the director of National Register History at the Minnesota History Society in St. Paul. Welcome to the show, Dennis. Uh,
2: Thank you for having me. Um, I should make one correction though. I'm not really the director. I'm the National Register Historian uh, in the Historic Preservation Office. I don't really get that title.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I just gave you a promotion, I guess. But tell us about your work as a National Register Historian. What do you do for the Minnesota Historical Society?
2: Sure. Um, There is um, a program called the National Register Program, and I'm sure many folks have heard of it. Uh, Basically, uh, it is a repository, the National Register is a repository of those things that are worth preserving. Buildings, structures, uh, bridges, dams, churches, uh, all of those kinds of things. And uh, a lot of folks know about the National Register, and if they are interested in placing a property in the National Register, uh, they that that kind of funnels through me. They contact me, and um, they'll ask how they get a property put into the National Register. Sometimes. Uh, it, well, actually many times it's consultants that end up contacting us because they're in the process of doing a project, they can be doing a project for the, for the Minnesota Department of Transportation or the Corps of the Engineers or you know, the Department of Natural Resources and uh, a lot of times projects, or excuse me, a lot of times properties come out of that, come out of those projects, um, National Register uh, eligible properties.
1: What is the advantage of putting a property on the National Register?
2: Uh, putting the property in the National Register is largely honorary, uh, but I should say that the reason it came about—it uh, came about via the National Historic Preservation Act in 1966—and the reason that act, the reason that act was created, is because we had this nasty habit of you know, sort of scraping from the earth our history, our built history. And so, with the National Historic Preservation Act, we uh, officially recognize the importance of state and local history. You know, we had, um, we always recognize places like Mount Vernon and Gettysburg, Pettus Hall. These things are all very important to our psyche, but it's or excuse me, our national psyche. But it's really the places where we live, work, play, and pray that chiefly define who we are. And that was the real benefit of the National Register. So all it, it is honorary, uh, but it's a way. With the act creating the National Register, now we had this way of recognizing the state and local history. So when MnDOT or, or, or the Corps of Engineers or some other agency came through and was doing a project, instead of w- wiping that history away, uh, we were able to start highlighting that history. The National Register gave us the ability to do that. Um, there's a couple of things I should comment on in Minnesota. There are a couple of financial benefits to having a property in the National Register of Historic Places. Uh, nonprofits, 501c3s, for example, uh, if they have a property in the National Register of Historic Places, they can uh, they can get grants for that. For those properties, uh, and then also from a you know from a, the perspective of a private individual, if a private individual has a property in the National Register and that, that property is income producing, uh, they can get tax credits for historic rehabilitation, both state and federal tax credits. And both of these things are incentives to to uh, you know keep your National Register properties around. You know that our history, our built history, is pretty cool. We don't have to tear it down all the time. Are there some famous
1: examples of? Um places that have been put on the national register here in minnesota that you could talk about for our listeners and give them an idea of what sort of properties end up on the list?
2: Oh, sure. Um, there's there's a wide range of properties. Uh, don't just think of the big, don't, don't just envision the National Register as, con- as holding those things that are only the big grand things, okay? Uh, in Minnesota, one of our major National Register properties is the Stone Arch Bridge in Minneapolis. And that doesn't surprise anybody that the Stone Arch Bridge is in the National Register of Historic Places. But we also have these incredibly humble things. Uh, a good example would be um, the Hinkley Fire Relief House in Shandstone. Uh You look at that house, anyone drives by that house, they probably never know that property's in the National Register of Historic Places. But that Hinkley Fire Relief House tells a really interesting story. It talks about the fire in the late 1800s that kind of swept through the Hinkley area and uh, St. Louis County burned a lot of that, burned a lot of towns down uh, and created a lot of devastation, lost uh, a lot of lives, a few hundred if I remember correctly. Uh, and we had this sort of early example of Habitat for Humanity where we started building these little houses that we call the fire relief houses to, to help all the folks that lost their homes and uh, there's very few of those left or there's very few that haven't been substantially altered and the, this little house is still largely the way it always was there in Sandstone but again when you drive by it you'd have no idea that property, or no, no idea that property's is in the National Register and what story that house can tell. Uh, But then there's a a lot of other wonderful properties. I'm something of a bridge nut. Uh, In in the St. Croix River Valley, about five miles north of uh, uh, Stillwater, is the Sioux Line High Bridge. And the Sioux Line High Bridge was designed by a gentleman named Cat Turner, Claude Allen Porter Turner, uh, a nationally renowned engineer. And it's this big, beautiful, uh, uh, big, beautiful metal arch bridge. And it just sort of leaps across the river. And I'm convinced that if folks had a chance to see that bridge, it would be every bit, every bit as popular as the Stone Arch Bridge in Minneapolis. It just happens to be hidden in the, in the St. Croix River Valley. But again, there's, there's numerous other properties. We have all kinds of churches. we got some big, beautiful churches like uh, the Cathedral of St. Paul, the Basilica of St. Mary. Uh, and then we have some, some very small and, and humble churches in different parts of the state that are also in the National Register. A lot of, a lot of Lutheran churches. Uh, this, um, this state had, had a very large um, German uh, population, a lot of Lutherans, and, and, and actually a large Catholic population as well. Uh, Germans and Irish, but uh, that's kind of another, that's, that's another story. We can talk a long time about that, but I guess the point I'm trying to make is that you know every property type that you can imagine, uh, we consider, because you know, they all tell a story, and as long as we can demonstrate that they're historically important, historically significant to their communities, uh, that's, that can get them into the National Register. Uh,
1: when a prominent person in the Twin Cities is being interviewed on national television, uh, often, the image in the background is the Stone Arch Bridge in Minneapolis, I've noticed. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that bridge and what, why it is significant?
2: Sure, um, the Stone Arch Bridge was built by James J. Hill. Yeah, it specifically, it was built by the, the Minneapolis Union Railway, which was a sub, um, subsidiary. of of Hill's. Hill is most famous for creating the Great Northern Railroad. Uh, The Great Northern uh, is really a compilation of of many many different railroads. Um, But his, one of his major major marks on the landscape was the Stone Arch Bridge. And it goes over the Mississippi River, comes and joins St. Anthony uh, with the main part of Minneapolis. And it is the only Stone Arch Bridge that spans the Mississippi River and it is monumental. When you think of Stone Arch Bridges, well, the vast majority of Stone Arch Bridges are very small, humble bridges, they're not big. This one is monumental, it is huge. Uh, not only that, it spans a very delicate part of the Mississippi River. Uh, the stratum below the river is very weak, and uh, when he built that bridge, he had to build it in such a way where he did not his footings on that weak stratum, and because he could break the he could break the bottom part of the river away Uh, so he built it with uh he built it with well with an arch in it as it starts to come across the river uh it comes across the river in a northwestern angle and then it just swings sharply north so picture a stone arch bridge with a curve built into it
1: the uh the locks, uh, which are famous in Minneapolis, are very near the Stone Arch Bridge. Are the locks on the National Register, too? Uh,
2: you know, I don't believe the locks are on the National Register. Now, I know that they have been looked at. I know there's been a Corps of Engineer projects uh, that have looked at the locks, and I would not be at all surprised that the, that at least some of the locks are eligible for listing in the National Register
1: how hard is it to get on the register let's say a person in Minnesota thinks that they have a very prominent church in their town and they're interested in getting that church on the register what criteria do they need to meet or how high is the barrier
2: sure it's uh, it, it is a rather academic discipline um, it, it's not it's not an easy task, but we are here to help folks that are interested in getting properties listed in the National Register. Uh, there, there are two principal things that we think about when we're contemplating whether or not a property is eligible for the National Register. We're, we're thinking about uh, this concept called historic significance, and we're thinking about a concept called historic integrity. In a nutshell, historic significance, uh, we're asking, okay, how important is this building, how important is this bridge, how important is this church, Well, when we contrast it with other like properties. And if we can demonstrate that it has a more significant history than these other places, then we are essentially demonstrating historic significance. With historic integrity, we are asking the question, okay, how original is this property? Uh, how, how much has it changed over time? Is it still largely the same as it always has been? Uh, that is not to say that properties can't change over time of course they can change you know the national register recognizes that they are working buildings after all uh, but we still have to have those features those character f- defining features that tell us what why that property is important uh, for example if we're looking if a queen anne house is in the national register well what makes a queen anne house a queen anne house no well, corner tower wrap around porch uh, cresting um, you know, Port Cacher, things like that. Those are all character-defining features. And if those things are still there, then we have historic integrity. Uh, so, it's not always—it's not necessarily easy, but it is honest. And it's the, the program is designed to really uh, put those things, th- those places in the National Register that are truly different, are truly significant.
1: Dennis, are there states? Um in the Union which are more active uh, in terms of putting places on the register than others and I'm in the background of my question is it seems like Minnesota in particular but other states like Wisconsin have very active historical societies and do a lot of the kind of work that you do Mm -hmm. do you think that there's more of this kind of uh, effort put forth in Minnesota to put places on the National Register than in other states?
2: Uh, you know I would put us up towards the top, you know, I, I don't know exactly where we would align I know that there are states that have bigger offices than us and they have in other words There's the, you know in this office. There's me, and I have a cohort a lady named Jenny Way um, We are the ones that work with the National Register program There are other states like North Carolina and Cal California that have more people that do this kind of thing in their office um, but they also tend to be, you know, larger in populations and stuff. But uh, generally speaking, uh, Minnesota is right up there towards the top. All
1: right, uh, Dennis, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about your family history? I know they have a lot of uh, Minnesota roots. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to be currently the National Register Historian here at MHS. Sure.
2: Um, actually, my folks were from northern Minnesota, a town called Deer River, a little town called Deer River. They didn't actually know each other when they were growing up. They they met uh, they met actually a little bit later. Um, but um, my father was in the military, uh, and so we ended up moving around quite a bit when I was a kid. I was something of a something of an army brat. I was born in Frankfurt, Germany. Uh, my brother was born in Colorado Springs, so we were at the military bases there. Uh, eventually we came back home here to Minnesota. And uh, most of my life, the vast majority of my life has been here in Minnesota. I think, uh, I want to say we got here when I was about 12 years old, something like that. So I've been, been here ever since. I consider myself a Minnesota boy. Uh, it, you know, I guess like anyone that sort of ends up in a field like this or ends up working in the history field uh, you, have a, you have a deep fondness for history And you end up getting lucky And uh, you find yourself working in. When I, when I went to college, I got my degree in the subject that I enjoyed most Which was history And to be honest with, with you, I wasn't entirely convinced that I would end up working in that field mm-hmm. But uh, you keep trying to keep digging And finally you do And, and in my case... I, uh, I didn't know I would end up in this field of historic preservation, architectural history, that kind of thing. Uh, it was just, I just, based, I, got, I got hired by, by a company that just, they needed a scud researcher. They needed somebody to just hit the road and, and run around the state of Minnesota doing research at county historical societies, at county courthouses, at county highway departments, and I just fell in love with it. And uh, that was, so oh, 20-odd years ago. And uh, in fact, that, that first project that they hired me to do, it was, it was a statewide bridge project, and that's why I became something of a bridge nerd. Uh, and um, I had the opportunity to run all over the state of Minnesota and see all kinds of things and, and research all kinds of things. Never got paid well, but boy, I, the fact that I was getting paid to do it just impressed the heck out of me. And uh, I just stuck with it. And as as time went by, I just um, I I got deeper and deeper into it. I I learned more and more about the field, became pretty good at it and uh, wrote a few books and and ended up here at the Minnesota Historical Society in the State Historic Preservation Office, um, working as the National Register historian.
1: Let's talk about your books. Uh, Your uh, first book, I think I have the sequence correct, is about uh, historic bridges in Minnesota. Oh, sorry, that's the second one. Well, let's talk about your first one first, and that is a, a very thick book. Uh, looks like it's published by the Minnesota Historical Society Press, mm-hmm. entitled Minnesota Treasures, Stories Behind the State's Historic Places. Can you talk about how this book came to be?
2: Sure. Um, that was, boy, I want to say that was published back in like 2004. And uh, it's a book that highlights National Register properties. Uh, What we ended up doing is we we picked 75 National Register properties, and we essentially wrote vignettes for for each one of those properties. You know, there's roughly 1,700 properties in the National Register in Minnesota. Can't write about all of them. So you pick examples of all the various types. You tell their stories, explain why they're considered historically important in a sort of vignette format. Uh, And it was something that you know, the Minnesota Historical Society had actually been thinking about for a while. Uh, here you know, the, the, the Minnesota Historic Preservation Office is in the Minnesota Historical Society. The Minnesota Historical Society Press is here. And people were wondering, well, why don't we have a book on the National Register of Historic Places? And I think the timing worked out pretty well because I had wanted to uh, do a book on the National Register in Minnesota and I approached the press. uh, And they just kinda jumped at it. I guess I was lucky, the timing was just right.
1: Some of the uh, topics you cover in the book uh, include, for example, the Templars Lodge, um, which, uh, let's see, what county is that in? But I've noticed this when I've been driving around rural Minnesota, rural South Dakota, all these old fraternal lodges Mm -hmm. in particular masonic lodges masonic temples which at least in south dakota a lot of them are kind of on their last legs because those old Masonic temple uh, memberships are dwindling rapidly.
2: Yes, they are. Uh, it is it is regrettable because sometimes those those Mason buildings uh, are some of the the most wonderful buildings in in the towns. Uh, and like you said, uh, you know memberships dropping quite a bit, and some of those buildings are actually well, they're not even occupied nowadays. Uh, you know, I will say, though, last year, I want to say it was last year, we put a, a property in the National Register of Historic Places, which which is the Duluth Masonic Temple, and uh, if, if folks ever get a chance to visit the, the Duluth Masonic Temple, walk inside and see it, uh, you'll just be awed, uh, because you see all of the... You see the stages. You see the ornateness, the decoration, the symbolism uh, in in the various rooms inside the inside the, the lodge. It's, it's actually quite a large building, but it, uh, it'll pretty much blow you away when you look at uh, the ornamentation.
1: Uh, last summer, not last summer, but the summer before, we went to Lake Bemidji. And um, I had a book with me that ended up winning the annual award from the Midwestern History Association. It was published by uh, University of Minnesota Press. And it was about the northern lake country. And I know you're from Deer River. You probably uh, will know a lot about this. But we ended up staying at one of these northern lodges that was covered in this book. Because um, this historian did a great job of Doing a tourism history of northern Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan, and drilling down and describing these famous lodges on places like Lake Bemidji. And I think I remembered on the wall there being a National Register of Historic Places plaque in this lodge. But, you know, these were places where a lot of American presidents would go, and the governors of Minnesota would go, and they would fish for walleye for a week, and it's just. It uh, was wonderful country.
2: It is. It is. Uh, I, I know, for example, um, uh, you know, up in up in uh, Detroit Lakes, it's the Greystone Hotel. Uh, the Greystone Hotel was a getaway. Uh, for for folks in uh, the Twin Cities area, they take the train. They take the if I remember correctly, it's Northern Pacific, uh, right up into Detroit Lakes. You get off, and right across the road is the wonderful Greystone Hotel uh, in northeastern Minnesota's Nantahala Lodge. You know, a wonderful uh, sort of craftsman looking lodge right on the lake.
1: And I think that one is covered in your it first is. book. Let's talk about your second book, which is all about uh, Minnesota's historic bridges. Can you talk about some of your famous bridges that you've studied over the years?
2: Sure. You know, as I I noted earlier, I I became very fond of bridges with that very first project I was hired to work on. uh, The opportunity to to run around the state and look at all these different bridges and learn so much about bridges. And I still remember the gentleman that hired me and, and trained me. Uh, told me that uh, when the project was finally done I'd never look at bridges the same way and boy was he right, you know, every time I go across a bridge or underneath a bridge I'm looking at it to see what kind of bridge it is and how it's put together and so you do become something of a nerd but boy it's, it's been enjoyable uh, I have a number of bridges that, I, that are like my favorites uh, without a doubt the Kern Bridge uh, just south of Mankato is just a wonderful bridge It's the only bowstring arch that uh, we have left in the state of Minnesota. It's a wrought-iron bridge. It's built in 1873 um, It's not in use right now. It's still in place, but it's not in use um, I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen to it, but boy I, I would imagine if if every if anyone ever wanted to take that down there'd be a bit of an uproar uh, Like I said, that's that's a one-of-a-kind bridge uh, out in Stillwater uh, uh, is uh, the Point Douglas-St. Uh, Louis River Road Bridge, which is uh, the oldest known uh, bridge that we, that we still have in the state. You know, it's a little uh, stone arch bridge. And you know, just by you know, sort of a you know, quirk of history, it ended up in the backyard of this lady um, out in Stillwater, named name's Barb, and uh, she is a good steward of that bridge, is on her property, boy, but she really works to take care of that bridge. Uh, one bridge I mentioned earlier was the Sioux Line High Bridge, which is uh, north of Stillwater in the St. Croix River Valley. Again, um, a, a, a wonderful metal arch, a wonderful steel arch. Uh, and I always... When I describe it to people, I I say if you it, it, you know if you picture the stone arch bridge in Minneapolis and it's so heavy and ponderous, a nice bridge but so heavy and ponderous, this is the the, the Sioux Line High Bridge is the exact opposite of that. It's very nimble. It almost looks like from a distance you could sort of push it right over. Uh, and of course we have. Um, uh, well, the aerial lift bridge in Duluth, yeah. I have to speak to that one. Uh, the Oliver Bridge, uh, which is also in Duluth, uh, it joins the southern part of Duluth with uh, Oliver, Wisconsin. Big, heavy, ponderous bridge, it's a double-decker bridge, uh, train across the, trains across the top, um, automobiles and, and trucks across the bottom, mm-hmm. but it's a swing bridge too, this big double-deck uh, bridge, it opens up and it swings open. Hmm.
1: Is that the one that connects Minnesota to Superior, Wisconsin?
2: No, no, it's it's not that one. Okay. I know which one you're talking okay. about, but it's not that one. This is this is a much more raw-looking bridge. It's it's a, it's um, it's, it, it's a much more crude-looking bridge, but it it didn't have to be fancy because it wasn't right out there for the public to see. Uh, it's a very um, industrial-looking bridge.
1: Have you followed the? Uh, developments with the High Line in New York City
2: Uh, You know, I have not actually followed it much, our historical architect asked, but I I haven't followed it much.
1: I did see a great documentary in recent weeks about the uh, effort to save the High Line uh, through Chelsea, New York. And they were about to tear it down, and all these uh, local developers and neighbors in the area decided to save it. And it's become one of the most vibrant tracks in New York City. And everyone walks on the High Line to work and... From downtown to uptown. Wonderful. But it was a great research or a great uh, historic preservation Mm -hmm. project. Um, I am told you're also working on a book about the state capital of Minnesota.
2: Um, yep, yep. It's uh, in fact, I got to get that manuscript wrapped up right about now. Um, yeah, it'll be published uh, next year, in time for the grand uh, reopening of uh, the Capitol. Uh, the grand reopening is, is scheduled right now uh, in August. It, uh, now, it'll the Capitol. Well, in case folks don't know, the Capitol's been undergoing a restoration for you know a bit over three years now, about three and a half years. Um, and uh, it's finally going to open um, in January to, to, to the legislature. They'll be able to start doing their work again in, inside the Capitol. Um, the, the grand reopening will not be until August and that's the, that's the plan for the book to be done, but right about the time of the grand reopening.
1: Okay. Um, there has been quite a bit of news from Minnesota in recent days uh, relating to the Capitol. And in particular, uh, relating to this question of of historical interpretation, uh, um, specifically, uh, the governor of Minnesota has asked some of the uh, famous historic paintings that were in the Capitol or are in the Capitol and um, depict Minnesota's role in the Civil War. He's asked them to be moved or some sort of changes to be made. Can you talk about that controversy and explain it to our uh, listeners?
2: Sure. Um, You know, it's it's rather interesting. I wanna say it was back in 2013 when when the governor first um, raised the issue of perhaps uh, moving some of the Civil War paintings out of the governor's reception room. Uh, And that statement actually kind of spurred a further talk about some of the paintings that uh, depict Native Americans in a less favorable light. And that became kind of the chief focus for a while. We were looking at that and, you know, do we keep some of these paintings that may negatively uh, reflect Native Americans? Do we keep those in the governor's reception room or do we move them out? And, you know, a lot of decisions had been made on that. And then, uh, oh, it's about a month ago or so. Uh, the Civil War paintings came up as a big topic uh, because the governor kind of um, uh, stressed again his desire for those 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 paintings to be moved out of the out of the, the governor's reception room. You know, and his thought was, you know, that Minnesota was or Minnesota is more than than the Civil War paintings, um, but at the same time, you know. <sighs> It, that that building itself is a pretty important, um, well, I guess you would say, monument to to the Civil War, uh, and so it's been quite an ongoing discussion here. And then uh, yesterday we finally had uh, a vote of the Executive Council here at the Minnesota Historical Society. Uh, the Minnesota Historical Society has the final say on whether or not those paintings will go out, and uh, they voted to keep them in. Um, I suppose I can elaborate on more things if you wish. Uh,
1: is the is the matter settled now?
2: Um, largely. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's it's you know again it's the Minnesota Historical Society. had a few partners in this. You know there's you know, the, there's a, a, a capital architectural, or Art and Architectural Planning Board, uh, it's called the CAP Board, and there's also the, the Capital Preservation Committee. You know, All of these groups had met and talked about this issue, talked about the Civil War paintings. Um, but the, the final say came down to the Minnesota Historical Society, and that Executive Council, and they, they voted unanimously yesterday to, to keep them all.
1: And what, in a nutshell, do the paintings depict do they depict the first minnesota and some of the famous regiments from minnesota exactly, or? exactly. it,
2: it, it the, each one of them depicts uh, one of the regiments um there's you know the the battle at gettysburg uh, the first minnesota at gettysburg and um uh, there's, there's a Minnesota regiment marching into Vicksburg, another one at Nashville. Uh, so there, there's a handful of them. It, it, it all speaks to Minnesota regiments. So all these paintings speak to, to a, a various Minnesota regiment.
1: We've been talking this morning with Dennis Gardner, the National Register Historian at the Minnesota Historical Society. Um, We thank you for joining us for another episode of Heartland History. I'm your host, John Lauck. Our show is produced by Dana Brown. Thank you once again, Dennis, for joining us.
2: Oh, thank you for uh, inviting me. Thank
0: you again for tuning in to Heartland History. If you would like more information about the Midwestern History Association, visit us at midwesternhistory.com. You'll have access to information about memberships, news about upcoming conferences, calls for papers, and panel proposals related to Midwestern history. You might also be interested in subscribing to the Print Journal Middle West Review or reading our online journal, Studies in Midwestern History. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and you can find us on Facebook. Until next time,